0: actually going to put it. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Good evening, everyone. Welcome. It's a new academic year. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on a very cloudy night here in Tucson, Arizona. So while I'm at it, um, the weather forecast calls for thunderstorms later this evening. The telescope will not be open. Uh, We can't get it wet. So the telescope will not be open after today's lecture. But welcome, this is the beginning of the 88th Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series. Uh, For those of you keeping count, the observatory is in its 92nd year, but there were four years during World War II that there were no public evening lectures because the one astronomer on faculty had to go to war. So, uh, we didn't have an astronomer here during World War II. Uh, Anyway, so it's the 88th season of the public evening schedule, and I would hope that you have picked up the flyer that I lifted at the back, or pick one up on your way out. It not only lists the public evening lectures for this semester, but also on the back, it lists the public lectures from our sister department, the Department of Planetary Sciences, otherwise known as the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. Their first lecture was actually last week, but they have two more uh, coming up in October and November. I'd also like to note, I'm really proud of myself, I had this schedule nailed down uh, back in June, so I even made the U of A Visitor's Guide. Uh, We have several exciting lectures planned for you this semester, as well as January. I've already scheduled the two speakers for January 2015. I'm just waiting for a title from Daniel Stark. And that's because we're gonna take a break next February. As you may or may not know, the College of Science always has a lecture series in Centennial Hall in February and March. And they've moved them to Monday nights, thanks to UA Presents, now has a full schedule. So I didn't mind last year when the subject was neuroscience but this next spring the subject is astrobiology, all right? So they'll basically be astronomy themed lectures in Centennial Hall. So we have lectures from now until January 26th, then we'll take a break in February and March while you can attend the College of Science lectures in Centennial Hall, and then we'll come back after spring break at the end of March and have three lectures in March and in April. But I really want to bring to your attention something very, very exciting, because it's what I'm working on. Our lecture on November the 10th, all of these lectures now will be every other Monday evening, but on November the 10th, we won't meet here. We will be in the Flandreau Planetarium because you may have seen the paper or heard on the radio or on Channel 9 News that we now finally have entered the 21st century as far as astronomy education is concerned, we have a digital full-dome planetarium projector. Uh, some of you may have already seen the shows. The shows are open to the public. If you go to flandro.org, you will see the schedule. Um, we have the same system that they have at the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Uh, and I will do a special show for you on November 10th, and it'll be free, okay? We're, we're taking care of the, the cost. So. I will invite you all, especially on November 10th. The students probably won't be here because there are no classes on November 11th, so they'll probably take the four-day weekend. But if you're here, 7.30, we'll be over at the Flandro Science Center, you'll get a chance. I'll, I'll introduce you to the new system. Um, as again, I mentioned, there will be no telescope viewing after today's lecture. And if you are a student here for an assignment, I am the person that validates your assignment. I'll be down at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period uh, to validate your assignments. All right? Okay, so what better way to start out such an exciting series of nine lectures than to start off with one of our most dynamic speakers and educators here in the Department of Astronomy? Professor Donald McCarthy is actually been here longer than just about anyone else because he did his PhD here as well. His bachelor's degree in physics is from Princeton. That's someplace in New Jersey. And then he arrived here in 1970 and he got his PhD in astronomy uh, here at Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona. But besides leading a very, very active research program in infrared astronomy, and trying to you know find the first brown dwarfs and looking for planets around other stars and other active research program that he has, um, he also has been very involved in outreach, especially in instituting the astronomy camp program that has been very popular uh, up on Mount Lemon and in recognition for that and the other things he does, I think it was last year the American Astronomical Society awarded him the Education Award and just last spring the university named him a Distinguished Outreach Professor. You may know there are three at the university, three missions of faculty, research, teaching and outreach. And the very best researchers, they give the title of research professor or regents professor Distinguished Professor for Outstanding Teachers and an Outreach, Distinguished Outreach Professor. And there are very few of those here at the university. Uh, We're very pleased to start off our new year of lectures with Professor Donald McCarthy. Don?
1: (laughs) Thanks, Tom. He wasn't gonna say any of that. Uh, Certainly not that I'm in my fifth decade here, um, but that actually is part relates to part of my talk. What I want to do, and I found a better title than the one he just showed you. He doesn't know that I changed the title. Uh, the word selfies is so much in the news that I thought I should use it. So alien images of the Earth. We're not going to. If you're here to see aliens, um, they're not going to appear. Okay. Alien in the sense of outside the Earth, foreign. We're going to look back at the Earth in a rapid fire way. I have been uh, privileged in those decades to actually have grown up in the unique time period where every one of these pictures has been taken. As a third grader, watching the first satellites and so on. And so that has very much been a motivational factor for me, undoubtedly why I'm in astronomy and I like to share this unique perspective with other people. So I hope that you'll see as we go through the talk how the Earth fits into space, where, how, where we're moving, what time periods, and so on. And also I hope you'll see some images that you've never seen before. Fred Hoyle a very famous astronomer, once made this statement about a future picture to be taken of the whole Earth from space. In a past lecture here, I once talked about President Kennedy's space speech on the 50th, I think, anniversary, yeah, 50th anniversary of the speech. And I posed the question as to when people in the audience first saw a picture of the whole Earth from space. And basically, the young people in the audience can only say, I grew up with that picture, because that's true. Those of us who are in those advanced decades remember that transition from the period when there were no whole Earth pictures from space to when the first ones were seen and then subsequent ones as we explored the solar system and that's where I want to head. So here's a panorama of San Francisco taken from, I'm told, an array of 17 kites right after the earthquake of 1906. We're gaining altitude here, trying to have a panorama of our Earth. We go to 1935, and now from a manned balloon at high altitude, you can barely see the curvature of the Earth. I inserted this black line here That's a straight line and you can see the curve of the Earth with respect to that. Not as high as Felix Baumgartner went and jumped out of that balloon a few years ago, but still quite a great accomplishment in 1935. Then the first image taken from what we call today space at an altitude of something like 60 miles occurred here with a V-2 rocket, and now you can see the curve of the Earth much better. And again, Fred Hoyle has an insightful comment, I think, that it's not that far away to get 96 or more percent above the Earth's atmosphere. It's just a one-hour car ride if you go straight up. And who wouldn't like to take that trip? Oops. The first TV image, not an April Fool's joke, in 1960. From the Tyros, I think that was a weather satellite orbiting above the Earth, all black and white. The first picture of what we might call Earth rise in today's standard was by the lunar orbiter. There was a series of lunar orbiter missions designed to go and orbit around the moon and take scanned, literal photographs of the moon and its surface and send them back to Earth. In recent years, people have been uh, reprocessing those images. So here's a segment, and here's how the Earth would actually look if you could see it, even on the nighttime side. So you see a resurgence, actually, of people reprocessing space images and make, getting, getting rid of all the artifacts. And so they're, they're all coming back to life. Here's the second Earthrise picture just a few days later, again from Lunar Orbiter 1, giving us a sense of the whole Earth from space. Now from the backside of the moon, looking around the edge towards the Earth. Accidentally, when Apollo 8 went around the moon, circumnavigated the moon on Christmas Eve 1968, Frank Borman, who was from Tucson, went to Tucson High School by the way, and it was the commander of this mission, decided to roll the spacecraft, to turn it a little bit to, so they could take better pictures of the lunar surface. And this is the picture of the Earth that emerged. NASA never intended to take that first picture. It happened accidentally. The first one was in black and white that Borman took, and then Bill Anders took this color view. And this is what Borman said at the time. I think it's insightful to look at a few astronaut quotes, as we will do, to see what it's like looking back on the Earth from space, particularly the distance of the Moon. This is one of those reprocessed images, reprocessed in the sense that we now have a Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's making fine, detailed maps of the Moon, and you can put, you can recreate the exact perspective and replace the Moon in this picture as though you would be seeing it by eye instead of by an instrument with degraded resolution. As much as I like this picture, I think it's important to see the big picture, so to speak, and how small the Earth looks from the distance of the moon. Michael Collins was on Apollo 11. He was the command module pilot so that when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong descended to the surface, Aldrin was, if you will, stranded all by himself in the command module circling around the moon. So there was a time when he was literally the loneliest person in the world, in the universe as far as we know, when he was on the back side of the moon, he was completely out of sight of the earth and out of communication with the earth. So I like the way he puts it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion. Can you see how much the population of the earth has grown in those days? What are we up to now? Seven billion. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two. In other words, his colleagues on the front side of the moon exploring it plus one knows one and God knows what on this other side. Apollo 12, returning to the Earth from exploring the lunar surface, recorded this picture of an eclipse of the sun by the Earth. The first so-called blue marble picture was taken by the last Apollo mission to the moon, And you can see the kind of definition and resolution and color that we're now able to achieve here in 1972. Chris Hadfield, until recently, was probably the most popular space shuttle astronaut. He was the guy I played about going to the bathroom in space if you arrived here early. And I think he always has a gift for expressing himself. So although he didn't have this particular view, he was hugging the Earth just above the atmosphere a few hundred miles. It's still a jaw dropping experience. This is the first picture to show the South Polar ice cap. Suomi is the name of a, of a scientist at the University of Wisconsin Madison. I forget, maybe a meteorologist. I can't remember for sure. Uh, so the satellite is named for him. But I thought you'd enjoy seeing a picture not only of the Earth rotating but of what it now looks like when you see the nighttime side. In other words, it's all lit up. Light pollution is a big thing here in Tucson. We work to try to avoid that, and the Center for the the International Dark Sky Association is here as well. The first high-definition TV images, 2007, Japanese satellite. There you see the Earth rising, which is a sight you would not see if you were standing on the moon itself because the Earth would stay stationary in your view since the Moon always points the same side back to the Earth. So you have to be roving in some way around the surface of the Moon in order to take this picture here by a satellite. One of the most impressive things is not just how the Earth looks from the Moon, but to see it get smaller and smaller and smaller as you recede away. As this mission did, MESSENGER was a mission that uh, is still active um, in orbit around the planet Mercury. Now we have what are called the stereo spacecraft on basically either side of the sun. They're designed to look at the sun and give us advanced warning of uh, coronal mass ejections like has been happening in the last few days but occasionally they get some really interesting perspectives of the Earth and the other planets. So this is the stereo spacecraft ahead in the orbit. This is behind. And so you can see the Earth now from this distance looking like just a dot. And in fact, if you get the right perspective, the dots of the different planets overlap, as might actually have been an explanation here on the surface of the Earth Uh, for the Christmas star, when Jupiter and Venus were so close together in the sky that you could not resolve them by eye separately. Who knows? The Sun is off here on the right-hand side. You can see the solar wind of particles and gas expanding off to the left. The Earth is here so bright that it saturates and makes a line across the picture, as does the planet Mercury. But you see a couple comets coming by, and all the dots our stars in the background, you can actually see the effect of the solar wind on the comet's tails as that wind of high temperature gas and particles blows by. The same stereo spacecraft saw the moon move in front of the sun from, what do you think, closer or farther away than the Earth is? farther away so that the Moon looks, looks smaller as opposed to blocking out, as it does on the Earth, the entire surface of the Sun. Come back. The first Earth-Moon picture, 1977 by Voyager 1, a spacecraft that explored most of the outer planets and then is zipping on now over 100 astronomical units from the Earth, from, from the Sun. The, an astronomical unit, by definition, is the distance from the Earth To the sun, a convenient shorthand. The moon here has been enhanced. It's incredibly dark. It only reflects about 7% of the light that hits it. Now from Messenger on Mercury, a rather recent picture, Earth and moon. Or from the distance of Mars, first by the Mars Global Surveyor in 2003. And then with the High Rise mission, which was a very acti- actively uh, an active part of the University of Arizona here, in higher definition, the human eye, I'm told, could resolve the Earth and the moons as separate objects from the surface of Mars. The Juno mission is currently en route to Jupiter to try to tell us what the interior of Jupiter is like, and a lot of the modern day missions are getting what are called gravity assists by not going directly to Jupiter, but by going elsewhere in the solar system, making close passages by the Earth and getting a boost. And this is showing you, if you can see it, the moon and the Earth from a distance as Juno comes closer and closer to it. Here are some images taken from the Galileo mission that also went to Jupiter, orbited in a period of investigation, and then slammed into Jupiter's atmosphere deliberately. Here again, you see the moon going by the Earth, the Earth spinning. What do you think? Are these pictures possible? Audience interaction. They're real pictures, but not single pictures, because the, the South Pole, Antarctica, would never be fully illuminated like that. Doesn't point at the sun. But if you take a series of pictures over a 24-hour period in the southern summer, you can stitch them together in a way that shows uh, the continent of Antarctica and all the weather patterns through the clouds that are in that area. The Earth from Saturn. Can you see the Earth here? Kind of got to know where to look. Right there. If I didn't just blast your eyes with the laser pointer. Let's zoom in a little bit more. Or change the brightness anyway. Right there. In case you need help. Zoom in a little more. Here we go. And now you can resolve the Earth and the Moon in this first picture from the Cassini mission. Last year, you may recall, a day when we were asked to wave at Saturn from the Earth. And they would take a selfie picture of us, both, it turns out, from Mercury and from Saturn, basically at the same time. So here's what the Earth-Moon looks like that time, from Mercury and from Saturn. Now we have a little bit better resolution in terms of the separation between the Earth and the Moon. Probably one of the most famous pictures ever taken is uh, the brainchild of Carl Sagan, where Voyager 1 went by Neptune at a distance of 30 astronomical units, made good measurements and pictures of Neptune, and turned around and looked back from whence it had come, and took pictures in each of these squares where the planets were. Here's the sun for comparison, here's the same outline of pictures. Here, the sun's right in here. And the earth is lost, if you will, in the glare of the sunlight coming in at an angle through the camera, making that streak. That streak is an artifact. But you can see where we get the phrase, pale blue dot. Appropriately on Valentine's Day. I think that's pretty cool. Now, how well do you know your planet? Can you answer this question for me? Here come the lights. If the earth were an egg the size of this wooden ball, how much water would I put on it to represent our oceans? How deep? How much water? I pour a bucket on there, or what do I do? A millimeter. Turns out one drop of water, Does anyone in my class here? 196? Oh, good. Oh, that's your assignment for Thursday. So you, you're going to have to prove to me that it's one drop of water. That represents the entire volume of the oceans when you shrink the Earth down to the size of an egg. I think it's important that we have a perspective of our planet in astronomy. Here's another perspective. You want to hold the sun for me? If we scale the sun down to that size, the earth moon is here. This distance, see it's a pale blue dot? This distance represents one, one and a half light seconds of distance. The distance light would travel in a one and a half seconds. That's as far as any person has ever gone. And to put it on the proper scale in distance, we put it in the back corner of the room and then some. 10,000 Earths would fit between the Earth and the sun across one astronomical unit. But then, okay, 100 Earths would fit across the sun. Okay, just like that. 1% of the sun's width corresponds to the size of the Earth. 1 million Earths would fit in the sun's volume. I just told you that 10,000 Earths would fit in the distance between the sun and the earth, and if you could compare the two, which we can do numerically, you find that the earth is smoother than a basketball would be of the same size. This particular picture is an infrared picture that you can access the likes of almost any time and see where the water vapor in the earth's atmosphere is. And it can be quite dynamic. You can play some of these meteorological videos very quickly and see how the, the Earth's water vapor in the atmosphere is circulating. We do this all the time at night at the observatories to see what we're up against with the weather. Here's the oceans. we've come a long way in exploring our planet. Here we can even map atmospheric winds, and you can do it interactively on a website, taking out uh, winds at different altitudes above the surface. We know a lot about what's going on on the surface and in the atmosphere, and we know every night from spaceweather.com and the NASA network for meteors how many fireballs, large, bright meteors, hit the Earth's atmosphere and vaporize. But did you know that when I say vaporize, there's still debris that's left. It just, it just doesn't slam into the earth like Chelyabinsk did in, a couple years ago. It rains down debris all the time, 200 tons a day. And yet over a million years, that's an insignificant amount compared to the earth's total mass. Again, giving a perspective of our planet. Now, where and how is the Earth moving? Anyone predict where this picture is from? Yeah, Highlights Magazine. You were in class this morning. (laughs) They do good stuff in Highlights Magazine, which I look forward to every time I go into some medical visit or other dentist, eye doctor, or whatever. The Earth is rotating at the equator 1,000 miles an hour. Revolving in an orbit one-year time span around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. Now we're going to have no more selfies. We have to get our information about how the Earth is located and how it's moving more indirectly. Maybe other wavelengths of light that we cannot see or maybe subtle measurements that that tell us more about our environments. But let's go to the stars. and the outskirts of our followers, we will get to the nearest stars. We will get to the nearest stars. Every star you see in the sky from the darkest site on Earth is in our galaxy. You have to have pretty good eyes to see the one or two objects that are other galaxies millions of light years away, but to the normal normal eye, everything you see is in our galaxy. We are traveling with those stellar neighbors in our galaxy, which is a giant group of stars, maybe as much as two, three hundred billion stars of different kinds, sizes, and ages, and we're located here. We are not in the center. This is an artist's conception. Anyone know why we cannot take a picture like this? I could put a scale bar on it and say it's 100,000 light years across. It looks, I don't know what happened to my Andromeda picture, there it is. It looks like this. This is the picture of our next nearest neighbor. This is an artist's conception because we cannot get outside of it. It's being 100,000 light years across. And even if we could, it would take 100,000 years to send the picture back. Hasn't happened yet. We live in a so called barred spiral galaxy where the spirals don't continue all the way to the center. The distribution of stars gets kind of stretched out here. And by the way, when you're looking at a picture like this of a distant object, You need to keep in mind that while we're focusing on Andromeda here, 2.5 million light years away and its companion galaxies, every dot here is a star in our galaxy that we have to look past. These dots are just a few thousand, maybe, light years away. We have to look very far to see outside of our galaxy. Let's put a perspective on our galaxy. Let's say that the United States here represents our galaxy 100,000 light years across. The center is in what state? Nebraska. We are here in our solar system orbiting the sun in Virginia. But every star you see in the sky doesn't get you out of Virginia. Naked eye and that's because the limitations of the human eye, but also interspersed in our galaxy are little dusty, soot-like particles that absorb light from background stars, making it more difficult, if you will, to see through the fog. On this scale, these objects would be these sizes. The next nearest star would be the size of a reasonable, uh, out to the distance, uh, of a reasonable lawn. Or maybe some objects you're familiar with, exploding stars star formation regions, star clusters. We are basically here, again, in a simulated picture of our galaxy, moving in this direction. And I've just finished quite a few lectures in my class, including this morning, when I say that things look, in the solar system, move counterclockwise, as seen from above looking down. Well, this is an exception. Looking down on our Milky Way galaxy, the sun goes clockwise. We are moving in this direction, as in on the outskirts of the Orion spiral arm, 26,000 light years from the center, 500,000 miles an hour, and the Y should say U, it's meant to be astronomical unit. We are moving half the width of our solar system, out to Pluto anyway, a year as we literally, in a sense, stagger around our galaxy, admittedly at high speed, but taking 220 million years to go once around. Well, it's actually a pretty complicated path that uh, the Earth is taking. I've shown the sun moving around our galaxy schematically. Here's that same path. But remember that the planets like the Earth are simultaneously going around the sun, so it's like a corkscrew for the Earth. Are you with me? And the Earth's solar, solar system's orbit here, the plane of the solar system, is tilted 60 some degrees. So we're tilted and corkscrewing. And it's worse. The sun is bobbing up and down above the galactic plane and below. Currently, we're, we're on our trajectory up a little bit. Some hundred million years later, we're going up and down. I like to analogize, compare it to like a pigeon. You ever seen a pigeon walk? You know, they kind of go like this with their head. Well, the sun's going up and down as it moves around the galaxy with the planets, if you will, the, the plane of the planet's orbits tilted and corkscrewing around. So that's a complicated path, but that's what we're doing within our galaxy. We're looking ahead here in the direction of the constellation Cygnus, which is almost straight up if we could see the sky tonight. That's basically our path in the orbit we take around the galaxy. We have a slight uh, motion with respect to our nearby stars that takes us more towards Vega, but basically it's straight up at this time. And for that reason, when you take a deep picture of the sky, you actually see what look like two Milky Way planes. We, we call this pattern the Milky Way because we're looking through sideways through the plane of our galaxy. But remember that the solar system plane is tilted 60 degrees, and our solar system is full of dust particles, which act like little mirrors. So especially right after sunset, Those mirrors are reflecting sunlight to us, showing us the outline of the plane of our solar system with respect to the plane of our galaxy. And here is the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years away. I suspect this is the planet Venus or Jupiter, I'm not sure. I like this picture a little more better, so to speak. A hemispherical picture think from the Atacama Telescope. I can't remember for sure, but again, you see the Milky Way. Now looking towards the center of our galaxy, but remember we cannot see out of Virginia. In order to know where we are and how we're moving, we have to use other wavelengths of light, like the infrared or radio wavelengths of light, in order to get that perspective. And here's the plane of the solar system with the what's called zodiacal dust. Our journey around the galaxy is currently taking us through what is called a local interstellar cloud, a cloud of hydrogen gas, although you see it's rather patchy. Here's Alpha Centauri, basically the next nearest star. We're moving away from Sirius towards Vega and Cygnus in the sky. And by using ultraviolet and X-ray wavelengths of light, we can study this gas that we're moving through we can even see that the solar system is leaving a trail behind it as it moves in the galaxy. I mentioned that we're moving in the, towards the constellation of Cygnus, and that's where the Kepler spacecraft has been pointed, looking for planets as they move in front of or transit in front of their stars. And this is what is called an ORI or a collection, um, back a few years of all the planets that Kepler had discovered, now the count's over 2,000 or so. And you see there's some big ones and small ones, and it's turning out that the Earth and the solar system are not quite as typical as people originally predicted. Quite an interesting time in which to live. If we go outside of our galaxy schematically, we get to what's called the local group. And on the large scale now that we're exploring, you find that everything is organized again. In the galaxy, we have groups of stars. We can have groups of galaxies. Our local group has something like 40 galaxies in it, three large ones, Andromeda, Triangulum, and us, all moving around, and a relatively recent result is that they are not oriented randomly. There are a lot of other galaxies in here that basically form a sheet, a plane. And people are struggling a little bit with how to explain this alignment of the galaxies in our local group. And a very recent result has been the study of 8,000 galaxies in our neighborhood. We are here. This is now 500 million light years across and there are clusters of galaxies, and there are regions where there is a lack of galaxies, a so-called void, or relative lack of galaxies. And I think I want to...
2: Somewhere in the universe is a small blue planet, the third rock from a star called the Sun, just one of billions of stars in a spiral galaxy known as the Milky Way. But where in the universe is the Milky Way? A team of scientists gathered data on more than 8,000 of the galaxies that surround us. They mapped each galaxy's position and movement in space. And for the first time, they've shown that the Milky Way is part of a much larger system of galaxies, a supercluster that they have named Laniakea. The Milky Way is nested in the furthest reaches of this structure on the outskirts. The entire universe can be seen as an intricate network of galaxies, a cosmic web. Some areas are almost empty, dark voids. Others are densely packed with galaxies in regions known as superclusters. Superclusters are the biggest structures found in the universe, but scientists have struggled to define where one ends and another begins. To map our home supercluster, a team led by Brent Tully at the University of Hawaii studied the motions of the galaxies around us in unprecedented detail. Even though the entire universe is expanding rapidly, gravity is also at work, pulling against this acceleration. By discounting cosmic expansion, the team worked out which galaxies are being pulled towards us, shown in blue, and which are being pulled away, shown in red. This enabled them to create a map of cosmic flows the paths that galaxies migrate along, tugged at a tiny pace by the force of gravity. Using this motion, they came up with a new way to map the distribution of matter in the universe. Delving into our home supercluster, you can see that most galaxies are being pulled towards a dense centre. This is known as the Great Attractor. Our galaxy is among those sliding towards this patch of space, which dominates our region of the universe. Let's take a different view. Each circle represents a galaxy. Again, we can see most galaxies being pulled towards the great attractor in the direction of the arrows. Between the great attractor and us, the Milky Way, there's a relatively empty area, a blue void. And next to us is Virgo, a large and dense cluster whose bright galaxies have been observed from Earth for centuries. Until now, astronomers grouped us the Milky Way and its surrounding galaxies, with Virgo and nearly 100 other clusters in a supercluster that stretches 100 million light-years across. But using this new technique, we can see that this is just the tip of the iceberg. This cluster of clusters is merely an appendage of a much larger supercluster, more than 100 times bigger and more massive.